1: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend, Bear SAGE Institute colleague and co-host, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, it's Free Rider Friday for October. Welcome, Ed. Hey, Ron, how are you going? I'm great. How are you?
2: I'm terrific, thanks. I'm l- really looking forward. I just want to let everyone know we're pre-recording this show. It's a free Rider Friday 4th for, for November, uh, and we are doing it in November, but it's going to broadcast in early December. I always say that, Ron, because I'm paranoid that something like really major is going to happen, and <laughs> people are going to be like, why didn't they talk about like this major thing that happened?
1: Right, right. No. Yeah, you're right. It's no. I said October. It is November. I apologize. That's right. It's, it's no, November. that's okay. Yep, yeah. Yes, so it's,
2: it's actually November twenty first. Bitcoin is trading at uh, eighty one seventy nine. Just to let people know.
1: Well, uh, yeah, Ed, that's <laughs> uh, actually top of my stack, uh, and and maybe we can come back. We can talk about the Verisage Symposium and the Art of Value Conference that we held in your hometown. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. But let's just jump in. Since you mentioned Bitcoin, it's risen nearly 700% just in this year. And yes. It me, yeah, it's amazing. I know. You must be thrilled. Um, <laughs> here's the interesting thing. This is from The Economist called Scammer Substance from November 11th, 2017. So they're, they're talking about the Bitcoin rise. And, of course, they don't believe this is like tulip mania, anything like that, because they think this is needed and necessary and you know this is the the next layer of the internet. You know it's a trust machine. All of those things that we've talked about with Gilder and yep. Doug Sleetor and all that. But they're zeroing in in this article on the ICOs, the initial coin offerings. Ed, they've mm-hmm. got they've they've received three point two billion dollars this year. These ICOs, which almost oh. rivals internet startup venture capital funds. That's pretty amazing. Dang. And what, what's going on here is investors are looking to be there at the birth of a new Bitcoin. At least that's what the economist thinks. And I think that's a pretty good theory. Um, the SEC did bring its first charges against an ICO. A lot of these are scams, they, they think, or you know they're funding silly projects that won't work and all that. China and South Korea have banned ICOs completely.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And what the economist is saying, and I think this is a really interesting point, is that the ICOs could bring a new form of a firm as well, crypto cooperatives. So they get okay. the advantages of a firm, you know, lower transaction costs and all about that aggregation of capital, but you have a decentralized structure. So the economist basically concludes by saying, look, it's wrong for regulators to ban these things. They shouldn't be banned because Lots of good things can happen, even in a bubble or mania, even if people lose money. And they point to the dot-com, right, the dot-com boom and bust, which brought us Amazon and eBay. And if we looked hard enough, we could probably find some others, you know, that emerged out of there. Um, And they cite Quebec, which is really interesting because they invite ICOs into what they call a regulatory sandbox. So there's less strict rules so the economist is kind of preaching that they still need to be regulated, but with with kids gloves.
2: Interesting. Yeah, there's a there's a lot going on here, Ron. And and uh, man, I, I only know a bit about this and that was no pun intended on bit. Uh, the but I will say this. Uh, we are not done with this. I mean, th- th- this is oh, this right. is for real. And I'm not talking anymore about blockchain. I'm talking about Bitcoin. I, yeah. I, I don't know what it's got to go to, to to for people to go. Okay, this is real, but I think that over eight thousand dollars sounds pretty real to me. I mean, it, if if this were just fluff, and was was going to completely plummet to zero, I I, I don't think it would have gotten this high. I, I just I just don't. And I you know I look. I totally could could be wrong. This is complete speculation on my part, uh, and I'm certainly hoping that I'm not. But I, I can see this certainly being 10000 by the end of this year, which is only you know 30-something days from now. I think mm-hmm. that's very possible. And I think it could double or triple again next year or even go up 700% again next year. Mm-hmm. And we could see $70,000 $70, Bitcoin or $100,000 Bitcoin in two years. And I think it's very possible that this gets over a million dollars at some point. I really do. I and for a couple of reasons, number 1 is that it's really unprecedented in that it's not this is not a company. Right? This is right? This this is this is this isn't even an industry like real estate. I don't think there's a there's a bubble to be had here. It doesn't it doesn't follow those rules. Right?
1: Yeah, because it's not something that already exists. I mean, I, I guess you could sort of equate it to like the railroad burst, you know, in the 1800s. And the economists brought that up, too, along with like the dot-com burst when you had all these new companies. But but I think the difference here is is this is needed. There's no doubt that commerce is moving to the Internet and that whole trust transaction layer. You know, there's going to be some type of currency that's needed. when you know how many currencies can we really have? I mean, libertarians have been talking forever about, you know, free money and and uh, c- competition within money, and that's certainly true, but but some have to dominate others. Correct.
2: Correct. And look, I, I think there's there's lots of, of of reasons to to say that I, if it's going to be one, it's probably going to be Bitcoin. You know, th- this this goes to some. So some of the stuff that uh, Nassim, Nicholas Nassim Taleb talks about, right, with the with with uh, anti fragile, the longer mm-hmm. something exists, the more likely it is to continue to exist. Yep. And now, granted, Bitcoin has not been around all that long, but it's considerably longer than all of the others. Yep. Right. And yep. and and therefore and therefore it is the most likely one by far to continue on. Uh, you know, it, again, it, you're right. It, it's it's needed because we, we certainly need a currency system that is not based on fiat currency. I, I think that, the, you know, there's a lot of other things. Some of these ICOs that we're seeing come out. And I, again, I don't know if I have this right. But some of the more promising ones are interesting in that some of them are are what are called side chains, Ron. Have you heard of this? Yes. Oh, where yeah. They're Where they're based on... The bit on Bitcoin, in other words, Mm -hmm. to buy in, you have to buy Bitcoin first. Right. Right. So if anybody's going to get in and it's going to be, you know, $8,000 per Bitcoin to get in, and obviously you can buy, you know, one Satoshi, obviously, all the way down to that. But if you're going to buy in at that price, you're not messing around anymore. Right. Right. We're not talking about the creation of a currency from scratch, because that's what a lot of them did. They they started their own currencies completely from scratch. But some of these ICOs are based on the value of Bitcoin. I, you know, I don't th- think people are going to play around with that. Um, and then getting back to your tr- your trust layer, you know, that 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 an analogy that Gilder talked about, where this is the, the eighth layer of the internet, I, I think that's such an important point because when we get to that point where this is completely ubiquitous and transparent, and we don't even see it, yeah, man this. You know, that that's gonna that's gonna be big. That's gonna be big.
1: When when someone when a company democratizes this technology and makes it simple, so you don't have to be an engineer to understand all these, you know, wallets and keychains and all this stuff. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's gonna be big. And and you know, a lot of smart people like Gilder, like Trace Meyer, uh, the guy who does Bitcoin Knowledge uh, podcast. They're long on Bitcoin. I mean, Gilder thinks Bitcoin is you know. The, the one to bet on in the long term mm-hmm. and you know yeah. like you, you like you say, it's got staying power and you know that's
2: <laughs> <laughs> from, from their mouths to god's ears ron yeah. that's all yeah. i have
1: to say <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so darn elegant you know this whole this whole technology in the blockchain that undergirds it, it's just it's a marvel it's a human marvel this is the kind of stuff i marvel at
2: Yep. You know, the other thing I wanted to mention on this though Ron is that what I'm waiting for and this maybe even already exists is the corporation that is based on a blockchain. Right. So it, it, it's st- so where its stock is blockchain. Right. And I think that's interesting because now we're talking about a re- the replacement for the the corporation, the the government sanctioned corporation as a place to where you can pool money.
1: Right. No, exactly. Right.
2: That's really crazy. And then the other one that I heard in the last couple of weeks is imagine combining the common the the combinations of of the blockchain, Bitcoin, ordering online and semi autonomous or or autonomous vehicles, whether they be drones or or driverless cars to the Mm -hmm. point where you can you can you can have a you can order something on the Internet. And have it flown into your garage. And no one would ever know what it was.
1: Yep. And and Ed, one more thing to combine. Internet of things. All Mm -hmm. these things are going to be connected. You know, your your refrigerator is going to be able to do that ordering. (laughs) You won't even have to do it.
2: Right. Right. Well, and I'm just, as a libertarian, I'm just thinking about other things. Right. That, again, as being one of the few libertarians I know that has never smoked pot. (laughs) Like, I... You're just not going to be able to. You can't possibly trace all this stuff.
1: Exactly. Yeah. No. Oh, it's it's really exciting. I'm just uh, I'm just infatuated with this with this topic. So, that's mine. What do you got? I know we've got three minutes or so before the break. But what? what, Oh, that's okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah, no, I, th- you know, there's, and there's so many things. I, I, um, let's, let's talk about this one because it's, it's sort of semi related. Just in an article, again, in our, our, fav- one of our favorite go tos, and that is FEE, Foundation for Economic Education. The fact that in North Korea, the black markets are saving lives. Yes, I read that. And they, this is, this is the Jang, Jangmadang generation, mm-hmm. in turn, meaning market grounds. And initially they were disorganized traders in the fields, but now they're getting more and more organized. And they, they, they according to this article, they figure that roughly twenty percent of of North Korea Koreans participate in these underground markets. And this this to me is one of the the beginnings of the cracks in the the dprk and it can't it can't happen soon enough from my perspective this is a very complex issue i mean you want to talk about you know nuking them that no that's not the solution even sending in troops in in there is not a solution because they do have nukes this kind of stuff slow infiltration of the marketplace ultimately in my view is the long-term solution
1: Yep and and you know I've read a lot on this and those marketplaces sprung up in the in the 90s during the famine and the government cracked down on them but then they realized that since their central food distribution network was just you know utter disaster and couldn't feed people they had to tolerate these things now these guys still have to pay bribes sometimes to the police if they want to do a crackdown but you're right i mean they're they this is what's keeping people alive and it's also giving them a lot of media and movies and soap operas from South Korea, from China, and these people are starting to see that, hey, the rest of the world lives differently from what the regime likes to feed us, you know, mm-hmm. and, and tell us. And, and I just think that's, that's awesome when you, get that, when you get that free flow of information, you know, whether it's USB sticks or whatever, um, that's going to be really powerful.
2: Right, and next, who? What's ne- and next? Cell phones and Bitcoin. But wow, well, Ron, we're already up against our first break here. As always, Free Rider Friday goes goes through, go, go by very quickly. But I want to remind you, you can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website, of course, the Soul of Enterprise, where we post show notes and previews to upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor, Leading Results.
0: Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com TSOE to find out more.
3: There is no blueprint for running the perfect firm. No way to know the challenges you'll face. But your journey does not have to be an odyssey. Experience what it is like for every part of your firm to be connected. Experience a practice management tool where everything is just a click away. Experience Office Tools. To learn more, visit officetools.com.
1: All right well welcome back everybody we're doing free rider friday for the month of november and I'd like to remind you if you want to send ed or myself an email and suggest topics or give us feedback on the show we love getting your emails you can do so at ask tsoe at verisage.com and we will post full show notes at the soul of enterprise.com ed uh Going off on another fee article, the Foundation for Economic Education, you probably saw this one, too. This is from uh, Jeremy Horpidal, I believe, uh, from September 18th, 2017. Here's a number for you. 766 million, 10,000 people. So okay. 766 million people. That's the number that live in extreme poverty today. Defined as less than $2 per day, right?
4: Mm
1: -hmm. 6.4 billion do not live in extreme poverty. 6.4 billion people do not live in extreme poverty today. In 1981, China had an extreme poverty rate of 88%. 878 million people lived in extreme, Uh bone-crushing poverty. In 1987, it was 61%. 1999, it was 41%. 2008, it was 15%. 2013, less than 2%. Wow. 1.85%. You know, I look at this. This is the greatest story never told. When people express concern for the poor... You know, it just goes back to that our antidote, right? The only known antidote to poverty is wealth.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and whether you look at China, whether you look at India, some of these other countries, even even parts of Africa, they've all taken, you know, we, what we've lifted almost a billion people out of bone crushing poverty in the last fifteen or so years. It's all because of free markets, globalization, and and capitalism. <laughs>
2: But what's the genie
1: coefficient, Ron? Though rich are still getting uh, yeah. richer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you always have to throw cold water on this. But you're, yeah. I, <laughs> I know. Yes, it,
2: well, which which is what what they would what, what people would say, and it's a absolutely. completely ridiculous argument because and I, I just I just find the whole thing annoying when people are like, but the rich are still getting richer because right, like, based on, on what.
1: Yeah, because when we were at 88% of China being poor or India or whatever, people worry about the absolute level of poverty. Now that that's reduced, they've got to jump on to something else because, of course, you can never be happy with any of this stuff. But as if we could ever equalize wealth anyway, I mean, I, you know, you want equality, visit a cemetery. The the right. point of this is if we really care about poverty and really care about the poor, like Deirdre McCloskey always talks about and and by the way, Michael Novak was. This is why he kind of converted from the left to uh, neoconservative, whatever you want to call him. But he wrote mm-hmm. very eloquently on this idea of being for free markets because it's the only, it's the only escape from poverty. That's it. Mm-hmm. This is the only thing that we know that works.
2: Absolutely, and here's and here's you know i have just. Um, just a follow-on with that. I've got one here that I'm going to share that is a, a tie-in. This is uh, from a from a, uh, a website called the Catholic Thing. The Catholic mm-hmm. Thing, <laughs> and it's the the title of the article is "Someone Else Please Help the Poor." Right. Right. And <laughs> and it's it's a it's a whole it's a whole article that I think really uh, misunderstandings about this this notion of fair. And the, the, the notion of inequality, and it really does a nice nice job of, of, of uh, talking it talking it all through, right um, But what I think is interesting is, is the thing that it, it made me think of and I don't know if I shared this on this show before, but w- one of my favorite scripture passages, Ron, is and I love it because it's very easy to memorize. it's Luke 12 verses 13 and 14. Right, mm-hmm. so it's tw- it's twelve, thirteen, fourteen, Luke twelve, thirteen, fourteen, and it's the it's the preamble to the parable of the the rich fool,
1: mm-hmm. right,
2: and, and it's and it happens so it happens before that, and this is this is this is the verse. It says, "Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me," but he, meaning Jesus, said to him, "Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbiter over you, mm-hmm. right?" Mm-hmm. And so, in other words, working out like like I th- this is not something for me to 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 get involved with like over what this fairness is from an economic standpoint, right? right. I, I I believe that as a Catholic, it is my my uh, duty to help the poor and indigent. However, the question is to for me is should government be the judge and arbiter of how this is done, mm-hmm. right? And I think this is a this is a big a big challenge. Um, and, and and then you know what I usually get thrown at what usually gets thrown at me is that the cate- catechism of the Catholic Church has some line in there that says that the state is the is the the uh, the, the place where one should go for th- this kind of goodwill, I guess it's called, mm-hmm. right? But what they miss is something that Father Sirico talked about when he was on the show, and that is this principle of subsidiarity. Right, right, and this notion that socialization brings dangers and excessive innovation by, by the state usually ends up threatening personal freedom right. right right, and that it's really up to and this is where subsidiarity comes in what the church would call lower orders yeah. to for 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 them to, to for where that's where poverty should be alleviated in the lower orders, in other words, the lowest possible place. Whether that's that's at the church or synagogue or mosque level, or at the at the at the the neighborhood level, or at the city level, or at the state level, whatever the lowest level is, and if, and sadly, what's what's happening in the United States is we're seeing this push upward, right, more toward less subsidiarity and more toward no 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 Uncle Sam's going to take care of everything. I think this right. is a big danger.
1: I do too. It professionalizes care. You, you know and 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 welfare, and when you do that <laughs> what what's your line about when you professionalize care? It ceases to be caring,
2: ceases to be ca- Ceases to be yeah. care that, that that's Peter yeah. block actually yeah, yeah Peter
1: block yeah and and uh, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think Edmund Burke calls them little platoons, you know, but the idea that the lo- the people at the local level, the people closest to the problem, should be the ones that deal with it and and that could just be a family taking in a homeless person. But mm-hmm. when you can say, you know, hey, I gave it the office, <laughs> you know, these taxes have been withheld. So I don't feel like I have any personal responsibility to help anybody. That's the kind of situation you get in when you, let, when you leave it up to the government, especially a distant mm-hmm. government.
2: Yep.
1: So, nope, yeah. Absolutely.
2: Couldn't agree That's more. Scary stuff.
1: Well, that, that All right. Well, that was, was fine. Thing. So, go, so go, ahead and, uh, go ahead and give me another one.
2: Oh, another one. Yeah oh, man. Okay. Since yours was kind uh, of related to mine. Yeah. Well. Uh, okay. So th- this is one that we have talked about and, and that, it before, but I, I want to thank uh, listener Todd for sending this in this question in to me, and this is what he says. He said he's, I've I've heard the time time referred to as a commodity, uh, but have you ever heard heard of it referred to as a resource? Right. And he says, like, people are resources, but would time be considered the same? And I just want to say something that we've talked a little bit about, but I I had the opportunity to write something up on this, Ron, that I want to post on the website that I think is helpful. And let me just, my response to Todd is that basically time is definitely not a commodity, right? Since every minute, second, hour, week, month, day, decade, millennia, or, or hence our lifetime can only be used once. So it's clearly not a commodity. Right. Right and we've also heard this whole thing that time is a resource but that's not quite true either right human effort or more precisely human knowledge is is a is a resource but thinking of a person's time isn't right because what good is an hour from a person who lacks the ability or knowledge to get something done
1: right or somebody <laughs> right? who's sleeping
2: <laughs> right right so and then this is where it, where it ties into what we've talked about with George Gilder too which is that most properly i think time is best thought of as a constraint which is simply just a limitation or boundary to which we all must adhere, right? We, all humans, and I've heard you say this, we all have roughly the same amount of time. You, me, Bill Gates, whatever. Roughly. Uh, not, yep. not definitely, but roughly. The question is, what do we do with it, right? In other words, our, our efforts or our inputs are about the same. The more important question is, what are our outputs, or better yet, as Tim Williams would put it, what are our outcomes? right. 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 So I just wanted to get that on the record. This this whole notion of t- when we when I say time is a constraint, what does that mean? And that's what it means.
1: And 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 the other thing about that, too, Ed, is, is it's one of those concepts. It is kind of a construct. It's a human construct. I mean, Einstein talked about this, right, the relativity and all of that. But without getting into the physics of it. It, it, time is very egalitarian right you can't sell it you can't hoard it you can't trade it you can't you can't store it I mean you, you get what you get and that's it yep
2: yep. That is exactly correct. And, and, and that's the thing. You can't store it, unlike what CPAs will try to tell you, right? That you can't inventory it. Right.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, try and inventory time and try and buy it from somebody. You know, try and buy somebody's time. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, not going to happen. Not going to happen. Oh. So, Ed, we have a new sponsor uh, joining the Soul of Enterprise family, and I'm really excited about this. It's Abacus Next. What? Um, tell us a little bit about them.
2: Abacus Nest has a very interesting business model, Ron. The, the, the primary thing that they do is they have this thing called at uh, this the Abacus Private Cloud, and effectively what what that is is it's a super super secure way to access systems over the internet. Right? It's it's uh, uh, for those of you who are techie geeks, it's it's remote desktop server on steroids. Right? you can take mm. over take over a remote computer but it, it appears and, and runs as if it's it's in a in a web browser in a sense but on your computer right right the really cool part of that is is that th- that therefore you can take current desktop based applications and run them in the cloud and what they've done is just is ma- made them super secure so people who are who are running these systems that it has 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 purchased they purchased several uh, uh Different applications, right? And you can go to their website and find out more about what those things are. But th- they they have eff- effectively made made them cloud a size. It's not true multi tenant, right? But it effectively and and they've also given all of these products that they've they've purchased a nice facelift to make, give them modern. And I had the the, uh, the privilege of going to one of their their meetings where they they shared with us their their plans for the future and got talking with with one of the marketing folks and lo and behold they said hey listen we want to maybe think about being a sponsor of the solar enterprise so here we are I want to welcome uh, Apicus abacus next as a sponsor of the soul of enterprise and their commercial is coming up but we do before we get to that I want to remind you you can get a hold of Ron or me with that email ask Please also Don't forget to take a look at our book, The Soul of Enterprise, on Amazon. It makes a great holiday gift for the reader in your life, and you can purchase that both on the Kindle version and also the the paperback version as well. But right now, a word from our newest sponsor, Abacus Next.
1: All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're doing Free Rider Friday for November. And Ed, we had uh, Colonel Chris Elroy Strickland on the show a couple of weeks back, uh, one of the Air Force Thunderbirds. And he talked about the debrief and the lessons learned. Remember? That yes. Was, uh, great show. Was- yeah, it was. It was just awesome. I'm. I'm still giddy about that. Uh, <laughs> I got to talk to a Thunderbird. Anyway, the, a great article in the Economist, and boy, you talk about how relevant this is. And you know, we talked about how the, what we call the after-action review, he calls the debrief, uh, how it can save lives, literally. Mm-hmm. Well, the Economist has a great article uh, in the October 14th issue called Damage Control. And they're talking about trauma hospitals. And they Mm -hmm. say trauma hospitals are the equivalent of war zones, especially like after a terrorist attack, like the Boston bombing or what happened in the UK at the London Bridge when that person drove a truck into people, uh, the Las Vegas shooting. And they talk about there's a new KPI, new measurement that they look at. Uh, They used to look at uh, ratio, the ratio of fatalities, Divided by injuries, right? They don't look at that yeah. anymore. the The new KPI is critical mortality rate. It's the share of those admitted to the hospital with life threatening injuries who die. Okay. Right. So now, between 2001 and 2017, especially after a terrorist attack, that rate, that critical mortality rate, was 15 percent to 37 percent. So people who admitted who were critically, right, critically life-threatening injuries and 15 to 37 percent of them would die. That rate has come way down, especially Mm -hmm. in the rich world. For example, in the June 3rd, UK London Bridge attack, eight died at the scene. All 52 who were admitted into two hospitals survived and they were critically injured. None died in the hospital in the Boston bombing attacks in 2013. And in Las Vegas, after that horrific shooting, there were 104 admissions, critically ill people, and four of them died. Just for historical comparisons, in World War II, the rate was 30% of the wounded died. In Korea and Vietnam, it was 20%. In Iraq and Afghanistan, it was less than 10%. In other words, these trauma hospitals are debriefing with the military and Mm they're learning lessons. From the battlefield and how to save these people and it kind of revolves around better triage stopping Hmm. heavy bleeding with the with use of tourniquets also by the way removing those tourniquets uh, not letting them stay on very long that's a big deal and also doing the minimum to keep people alive they talked about a couple cases where in the Las Vegas shooting people come in they have six bullets in them the surgeons would only remove three because those are the ones that were most life threatening. They can do the other three later because they didn't mm. want to clog up the ORs and the wards. Um, Interesting. So, all of this is really, really part of what the military has learned. And, and you know, this is one of the reasons, too, why Chicago, um, you know, it's posited by economists who have studied this that the death rate in Chicago from all these killings, you know, gun killings and all that, gangs and all of that, would be mm-hmm. much higher say if they were taking place 10 or 20 years ago just because our med- our you know our doctors our ERs are much better at saving these people's lives when mm-hmm. when they cross that threshold which is phenomenal <laughs> i mean this is this is i mean unfortunately it takes a war to learn these things maybe but this is still a really really good thing
2: well well for sure and the advances in medicine have just been outrageous i mean the it's just just the antibiotics and the continued uh learning about antibiotics is is fascinating i i I honestly go both ways on on the the whole medical profession ron i mean i I, all of the doctors that i know are, are are extraordinarily fine people but i will say i i do agree with this statement though and this this actually came up at the the symposium if you want to kill somebody, get them a personal physician.
1: <laughs> yes, no, no, no doubt, no doubt. That's why I'm very skeptical about the whole preventive med- medicine thing. You know that that's actually been studied by economists, and they're, they they don't seem to come to the conclusion that it would save a lot of money. You know, but yep, and, and maybe yep. for that reason, right? Because boy, if you're going to just intervene, that can cause its own problems. Um, but boy, what I what what I really liked about this article too, Ed, they said it's critical, and and these hospitals have learned this; these trauma wards have learned that they've got to debrief after every major incident, and these debriefings can go on for days, right. and it's critical for the doctors to admit their mistakes. And and I think I told you the story. I told somebody the story, um, but you know when I when I was telling the story of uh, sitting in, in an after-action review in that ICU ward. And the, and the lawyer said, well, that'll come back and bite him in the butt and in a court of law. You know, doctors mm-hmm. sitting around admitting heirs And I and I asked the guy, do you have any kids? And he had a seven-year-old son. I said, would you want your son in a hospital that does after-action reviews or one that doesn't? It, you know, um, mm-hmm. and he said, of course, one that does. But, of course, he'd probably still sue them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why we have right. lawyers. Right, um, right, right. But right, it just... Right. It just that whole driving out fear, and it's not a blame game, and and especially in perfectionist cultures like professional firms or, or doctors, um, to be able to sit around and, and admit errors, is is I I, I just think that's so, such a huge effect of these debrief after action reviews that it it just it, it's insane why more companies don't use them.
2: Yeah, and that's that's a cultural shift too, Ron. Right, this whole notion of, of of admitting the mistakes. And I'm glad that you you were participated in that that emergency room where where they where they did admit to that. You know that this we have to fight this the, the litigious culture that's out there of you know people suing if the, for for those for those mistakes. I mean, if if for no other reason than that in the long run it makes us all stronger, right? It, it makes the system better. So. Uh, you know th- this is another thing. You know, back and forth on this notion of d- do you limit the liability uh, on on physician caused deaths just so so that they're they would be willing to admit that they've made mistakes.
1: Right, and boy, that's a that's a that's a big trade. I mean, that's a trade-off, no doubt. And I don't know if there's a clear answer to that, but to to hold these people accountable for what they say in an after-action review. Um, and then, and then, you know, to tag negligence on that or something, I just think, wow, that that'll just it will be a chilling effect on doing right. after action reviews, and then it, that that's horrific. I don't, I wouldn't want to think of the consequences of that. Look, look how much we've progressed in in this area of, of trauma wards, and that's because yep. of these these after action reviews.
2: Yep. And so. look, I think I think I think part of the reason why so so many people, so many juries awarded so many large settlements is because doctors ap- appeared to be so s- uh, so enraptured with themselves right yes. that they wouldn't that, and they wouldn't admit mistakes as part of the culture that when when a jury found hey listen this this doctor was at fault they they were they went the other way and said oh yeah oh big guy you think you're so tough all right how about 200 million dollars you're <laughs> right
1: Right, right. And, and when doctors admit mistakes and apologize to patients, they're, they're sued less. And, you know, even I even asked the ICU ward doctor when I sat in through that, I said, what, what has happened to lawsuits? He says, oh, there's been a marked decrease in, in lawsuits uh, once we instituted this policy. because they've been doing it for oh, years. That's great. That's great.
2: So, All right. Yeah. Well, let me throw one quick one at you, Bron. I, wanted, I want to talk um, I want to talk autonomous vehicles, which is right another on. favorite topic of ours. Uh, yep. I don't know if you're aware of this, but Walmart has its own. Have you heard about this? The Walmart mm-hmm. autonomous self-driving vehicle. Oh boy, no, I have not heard this. Yep, Walmart is coming out with where they actually already are testing them in some of their stores. It's not a car run. It's but it scrubs the floors. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And so the it, these have been been tried out in five stores near Bentonville. mm Hmm. And, you know, this, this could free workers from hours of drudgery. And, of course, what does that mean, Ron? They're worried <laughs> about what? Job loss. Job loss. That's right. That's right. The article, <laughs> this is a LinkedIn post from today. And, uh, you know, th- this is, oh, what, you know, what is, this is going to kill jobs. This is going to kill jobs. You know what? Driving around cleaning the floor of a, a Walmart, Ron? That job sucks, Ron. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you'd think we'd be able to find something better to do to serve, you know, our fellow man. But uh,
2: uh, yeah, I think <laughs> they, I think they will. And look, I, I this is just another example, like like uh, ordering through through uh, kiosks, right? This is what right. you're going to get if you get fifteen dollars dollars an hour as a minimum wage.
1: Yeah, going to happen. No, absolutely, absolutely. No, I had not heard that Walmart. That's oh. interesting. Wow, <laughs> we'll have to put them on our watch list now for. <laughs> <laughs> Autonomous <laughs> cars. <clears throat> yep, yep. So
2: anyway, but we're we're back up against our last break here, Ron. And, but please do uh, get a hold of Ron or myself. Ask TSOE, of course, at Verisage.com is the email address. I uh, want to remind you, please also give us iTunes reviews. The way to get there, if you just go to the soul of com slash iTunes, that will take you out directly to our iTunes page. And we'd love for you to give us a review or certainly rate the podcast. It's real easy to do that. Just click five stars uh, or whatever stars you deem appropriate. But uh, even more, if you want to take the next step and just write a couple of sentences on on why you love the soul of enterprise, we would really appreciate that. Uh, But we'll be back after this from my employer, Sage.
3: For more information, visit sage.com forward slash U.S. forward slash S.O.E.
0: Results CRM. The award-winning Abacus Next product is a customer relationship management solution that will automate your business processes, streamline workflows and deliver consistent results. Cloud enabled to provide access to your users anytime from anywhere. Grow your business in 2018 with the number one QuickBooks CRM. To learn more about Results CRM, visit abacusnext.com forward slash CRM.
1: All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're doing Free rider Friday for the month of November. And then I got one here from, of all places, the New York Times from September 29, 2017. Cuban doctors revolt. You get tired of being a slave. So <laughs> <laughs> this is a story about the thousands, thousands of doctors, Cuban doctors who work abroad. Right. It's, it's the country's most valuable export. Brazil alone pays Cuba millions of dollars every month (laughs) for their doctors um and the doctors the the brazil pays thirty six hundred twenty bucks a month for every doctor there there's roughly eighty six hundred doctors there but the doctors only get a small cut of this they get like nine hundred and eight dollars a month in u.s dollars if you converted Mm -hmm. um now they make thirty dollars a month in cuba so most of them, you know, are happy to sign up for this, even though, Ed, they have to leave their kids behind. Like they, they talk of they profile a, uh, a married couple in here that have children, two children. They're both doctors. But and they had to leave their kids behind because <laughs> that's the ransom. Dang. Right? <laughs> Dang. Uh, this, is, this is what the Soviet Union used to do. This is what North Korea does. Uh, so 150 of these doctors have filed suit in Brazilian courts. Now, some courts have granted, had, had, had thrown out their cases. Others, they've won. The Brazilian government's obviously appealing uh, the ones that the doctors won. Um, there was a USA program that was started in 2006 that almost automatically welcomed, welcomed any Cuban doctor. It was thought to add to the brain drain of the country, so we would we would take them take them in and give him amnesty and citizenship right away. In January, in one of his last acts, Obama ended it in January 2016. Before he left office, he ended that program. So it's pretty hard for these guys um, to to get to America. These days, so they're 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 fighting the Cuban government <laughs> uh, for a larger share of this thirty six hundred and twenty dollars that uh, the Brazilian government pays. I just thought it was it's really everybody talks about how great you know the healthcare system is in Cuba, and I think to myself, really, have you ever read any of the any of the accounts of the people who live there? They have to bring their own sheets. They don't have antibiotics. They don't have aspirin. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah, very skeptical of that whole thing that and that whole Michael Moore scene where he go, oh, we'll go to Cuba and get free healthcare for these people. We'll, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And why was didn't, it? When didn't Castro? Yeah, didn't Castro court, come yeah. to go someplace else?
1: Yeah, yeah, he went. He brought in Spanish doctors. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wonder what mm-hmm. from Spain. So anyway, I just thought that was uh, really cool. Tired of being a slave, I thought that was a great line from one of the doctors.
2: As well, they should be. As well, they should be. All right, Ron. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the event that happened a couple of weeks ago here in Allen, Texas.
1: Uh, well, first off, Ed, you, you've got a marching band down there, at your high school football <laughs> team. That's seven hundred and forty people, and, uh-huh. and we and, and it was an away game, so you and Kirk arranged buses for everybody, and and which was great. And it was a good that was a good thirty forty minute drive to that other stadium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and we're funny. sitting in we're sitting in the visitor section. And uh, right around the end of the first quarter, maybe the start of the second, the band starts coming out of the stands. I mean, I thought there was a bomb threat. It looked like it, <laughs> there was this massive evacuation. These kids have to take both sides of the field. It, mm-hmm. it looked like Napoleon's troops lining up, you know, on, on <laughs> both ends. Of, it was just, and and of course, I'm sitting there with Paul Kennedy, you know, our British colleague, and, and right. very understated, very droll sense of humor, and. We're looking over at the home side, and they've got their band up there. And, and he, mm-hmm. he nudges me he says, huh, they called out a band?
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, And it's what, 250, 300 kids? I mean, I thought it was it's not like it's a small. It, it, oh, it,
1: right? yeah, it, it was big. Yeah, it was big. And that's still big. <laughs> <laughs> but not yeah. compared to 700. When those 740 hit the field, they took up the whole field.
2: Yes, yeah. The Allen Eagle Escadrille and they just keep coming right when they see when do. they first come on the field you're just like are they ever going to stop coming like they're, they're just just
1: i, I would not want to be behind that convoy of buses trying to get out of the stadium behind those you know they they must no, have no, another convoy of trucks just for their for their instruments
2: oh it is it, it's it's 20 or 30 something buses just just for the for the band and all of their paraphernalia forget about the football team
1: so <laughs> I, I I didn't mean to dominate this conversation with the band, but that was that was stark to see a 740 member band, the the largest in in the United States, isn't it? For for high yeah, it is the
2: largest, and it, and possibly the world. There's some debate but, yeah. about that.
1: I, I yeah, I was going to ask you who in the world's bigger than this? I, I guess North Korea might have somebody. You know, when they when they do their games, they have like twenty thousand kids. You know, that
2: Mar- flipped, a marching
1: band, I suppose. Yeah, flip those but, yeah. cards over, but yeah, yeah, they're not a marching band. The, the other thing we did that I thought was really fun. Then we can talk about the conference. Was you took us everybody to Top Golf, and I had never been, um, and and that was just that is such a cool game. And, and it's just uh-huh. such a great idea, and it's just it's so well done, so well laid out, just architecturally, and just it's just a fun experience.
2: It's a great example of of innovation, Ron, and and something that that uh, Matt Ridley would call ideas having sex. Yeah. Right the the notion of of what you do is you put out an RFID chip in a in a golf ball and you hook that up with a driving range and driving range meets bowling alley and now you have to you have targets to hit rather than just whacking it as far as you can you can so even even younger players such as my daughter she she can play as well cuz she can just dink them into the 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 small little you know short targets yeah. and as long as she hits something she she's going to beat her beat her brother
1: yeah you know? Yeah, you compete against teams, and, you know, I, I think of it as golf plus, like, ski ball, you know, because yeah. you earn points, and, uh, yeah, it's really cool, and, of course, they have food and drinks and TV and music. I mean, it's just a really well-laid-out place, great experience, but, but Ed, you guys did, you and Kirk Bowman, our Verisage colleague who does the Art of Value podcast, you guys did a two-day Art of Value conference, and and, and that was so well done. Um Really got into the pricing, the value pricing, the value selling. You did your segment on value consulting, which I always find absolutely brilliant. The art of questioning and all that. And that was, it was just a great time. The feedback was just really, really positive from, from everybody who attended.
2: Yep. No good stuff. But, but, but. And and you can find more information about that at artofvalue.com. But and we 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 look to get a, a big blog post up with all of the resources. But let's talk a little bit about the Verisage Symposium, in the two minutes we have left in the show run, and the great job that the guys from Voice America did uh, for not o- not only broadcasting them live in their their live events page, but also putting them up on our website. If th- those of you who that got inundated in your podcast feed with all of all of our debt talks, uh, that, that that that's that's what we're talking about. But you should. Also, know that if you join Verisage and Friends on Facebook, and that an, the end is an ampersand, so Verisage and Friends. You can see the videos of all of those debt talks, as well as Ron's keynotes and and the keynotes by, what is he, uh, Tim Williams and and uh, oh, and Chris Marsden. So there was Chris really Marsden. great stuff out there.
1: And yeah. Greg Kite, our our resident stand up comedian, did a whole you know lunch with Greg Kite, which was absolutely hysterical. And Greg also did a debt talk. All of that stuff. Ryan Treasure and Robert Cellino did such a great job b- broadcasting that out, both audio and video uh, live. It was just fantastic. I'm thrilled that we captured it all.
2: No, amazing stuff. And l- look forward to doing that again in the future, both the Auto value event, which I think we're going to try to make an annual event, but then the biennial Verisage symposium, which I hope we'll do and maybe uh, down under next time.
1: It might be in Australia because we had such a large Australian contingent there. But, yeah, that, that was a great event, folks, and you can find out more information, like Ed said, on VerisAgent Friends. And uh, so, Ed, I'm looking forward to next week. Uh, I think we're going to be doing customer transformations, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Sounds good, Ron, and I'll see you in 167 hours.
1: This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, Friday, 1 PM Pacific, where we'll be talking about customer transformations. In the meantime, check us out at the soul We'll have full show notes on today's topics from free writer Friday. And you can contact Ed or myself at ask at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.